0: Welcome to the Golden Age of Comic Books. Hey Golden Age fans, it's March 21st, 2007, and this is the 50th installment of the Golden Age of Comic Books. This is Bill Jourdain, your host. I am very glad you're here on the first day of spring. What an appropriate day to do the 50th episode of the Golden Age of Comic Books. It's been a beautiful spring day here in my hometown, about 80 degrees today. Beautiful sunny day. I really didn't want to come inside to record the Golden Age of comic books, but it's been so long since I've done a show, I knew I needed to get on in here and get this show done. So here I am, and uh, 50 episodes later, I'm still going strong with the Golden Age of comic books. Some delays here and there in getting them done, but I'm still finding interesting Golden Age topics to talk about, and I plan to continue doing that as time goes by. So we've got a good show coming up uh, for the 50th installment. We're going to talk about some Golden Age-related books that have come out since the last episode of Golden Age of Comic Books. I've got a special segment from Bruce Rosenberger over at Comics Cast. I'm going to talk about the Golden Age Submariner on the Golden Age of Comic Books for this episode. And then I've got a special guest at the end of the show who's going to do a segment for us about a Golden Age story that's one of his favorites that he's read. So stay tuned for that. So let's jump right in and talk about some books that have come out related to the Golden Age of comic books since the last episode we did on February 9th of 2007. And the first book I want to talk about is not a Golden Age book at all, but as I said it's Golden Age related and that is the second volume of the Justice Society reprints of the uh, 1980s Justice Society books that took up the numbering of the original All-Star Comics run. This particular book uh, contains the last issues of the JSA stories that ran in issues 68 through 74 of all-star comics but it also contains a story that uh, a lot of Golden Age fans are aware of and some aren't and that is a story that appeared in Adventure Comics number 462 now Adventure Comics with issue number 461 took over the run of the JSA stories that had been in Adventure Comics up through number 74 And then with number 461, they started those stories in Adventure. Number 462 has the story that details the death of the Golden Age Batman. Of course, my favorite Golden Age character that I've talked about many times on the Golden Age of comic books. So if you're interested in reading the DC Comics version of the death of the Golden Age Batman, you'll need to pick up a copy of Adventure Comics number 462 or you can go out and get this copy of Justice Society, the trade paperback, volume 2, that was published uh, just a little while ago. The cover price on that book is $14.99 US, and of course you can get it for less than that from in-stock trades and other sources. So check that out, particularly if you're interested in reading about the death of the Golden Age Batman. And speaking of the Golden Age Batman, another Golden Age-related Batman book came out since the last episode of the Golden Age of Comic Books, and that is the Batman Greatest Stories Ever Told, Volume 2 trade paperback, that uh, has a great Alex Ross cover and contains several Golden Age stories. There are a lot of Batman stories in there that aren't necessarily Golden Age stories, but there's some good Golden Age stories as well. So check that out if you want to read some reprints of some uh, early Batman stories including a freaky uh, science fiction-related 19 late 1950s Batman story, if you're interested in, in those stories that came out. Another book, uh, I've talked before about the Chronicles that DC has been publishing for Batman and Superman. Of course, I've mentioned before that they published the Superman Chronicles Volume 1, the Batman Chronicles Volumes 1 and 2, and now they've come out with Superman Chronicles Volume 2. So it continues on with the effort of D.C. to publish in trade paperback form every Golden Age Superman story, starting with the story in Action Comics number one, in order, all the way through, I assume, uh, some point in time, maybe towards the end of the Golden Age, or maybe even beyond that. But every story there from uh, Action Comics and Superman Comics, and I presume World's Finest Comics, uh, will appear in order, uh, including the stories from the New York World's Fair, books that came out in 1939 and 1940. So check out The Superman Chronicles Volume 2 for a pretty inexpensive, great read of some great Golden Age stuff. The back of the book indicates that it contains the stories from Action Comics numbers 14 through 20 and the stories from Superman number 2 and Superman number 3. This book, uh, trade paperback, is also $14.99 US and it can be found cheaper, I'm sure, from in-stock trades and other sources similar to that.
1: Now, last but not
0: least, I have to mention a book that uh, came out just just really, I think, within the last couple of weeks. Another great Alex Ross cover on a Greatest Stories Ever Told volume. And this is the Superman-Batman Greatest Stories Ever Told. Picking up the stories from World's Finest Comics primarily, where Batman and Robin team up together to fight crime. This book starts with some golden age stories. In fact, it starts with the very first team-up of Superman and Batman where they learn each other's secret identities. And for you trivia fans out there, when was that? Well, that was in Superman number 76. And in that story, of course, Lois Lane is involved trying to figure out both of their secret identities. But in that story from May, June 1952, Uh, Kurt Swan, Pencils, and Edmund Hamilton uh, writing. They told the story of where Batman and Superman first teamed up and learned each other's secret identities. And, of course, the rest was history. Later on, they got together in the pages of the World's Finest Comics, starting with issue number 71 in uh, team-up stories. And uh, it went on from there until the end of that run. And, of course, in modern comics, Superman and Batman team up quite frequently. So check that out if you're interested in reading some of the early team-ups of Superman and Batman I think you'll find those stories really interesting not just Golden Age stories but there are a lot of uh, Silver Age stories in there some Bronze Age stories and on up to the modern times now DC's a little bit more proud of this book than they are of the Chronicles or the other greatest stories ever told because they're charging 19.99 US for this book I'm sure that you can find it a little bit cheaper as I mentioned before at InStock trades or other sources But uh, it's about the same size as the other two that I mentioned, but uh, a little bit more expensive by about five bucks U.S. So check out that book if you're interested in reading some of the great Batman and Superman team-up stories uh, from the past, the uh, more recent past, and the present. All right, well, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that Bruce Rosenberger was kind enough to do a segment for the 50th episode of Golden Age of Comic Books. Bruce's podcast is one of my favorites. Check it out, Comics Cast, Comics with K, Cast with K. Uh, His website is comicscast.libsyn.com. Just a great podcast. Bruce is a great collector of comics and strips and uh, just a great guy. So, Bruce, I really appreciate you sending this audio clip for this particular episode. And without further
1: ado, here's Bruce. Hey, Bill. Bruce Rosenberger here to congratulate you on reaching your 50th episode. Of all the podcasts that I listen to, Golden Age of Comic Books was the podcast that I most wanted to emulate, and I did indeed for a time, but it got to be exhausting, and I was only doing one show a month. The point of the story is that I have some idea what goes into your podcast, and that only adds to my esteem for you. So, once again, congratulations on the 50th episode of the Golden Age of Comic Books, and to celebrate... How about a short Funny Papers segment? Have you encountered a time-traveling Neanderthal, brick-throwing mice, and a kid in a yellow nightgown? Has your world suddenly gone for color? Then you've wandered into the Funny Papers. Back in September, on Golden Age of Comic Books, episode number 44, I did a segment on the Superman newspaper comic strips so I thought it only fitting to tackle another member of the Trinity, Wonder Woman. I won't rehash the origin of Wonder Woman, because Bill has already done that extremely well back in Golden Age of Comic Books Episode 22. The newspaper comic strip Adventures of Superman had been running for a couple of years, and the Batman and Robin strip seemed to be doing well, so it was probably inevitable that Wonder Woman got her own strip as well. But strangely, while both Superman and Batman were syndicated by the McClure syndicate, Wonder Woman went to King Features syndicate. I have to wonder if creator William Moulton Marston had anything to do with that decision, but I'm not exactly sure of the details of ownership of the Wonder Woman. The only reference to the syndication of the strip I can find is in Maurice Horn's 100 Years of American Newspaper Comics, and he states that National took the title to King Features. So be it until we find out otherwise. The comic strip was written by Marston under his pseudonym Charles Moulton and drawn by H.G. Peter, the same artist as the comic books. The stories revolved around the same characters as the comic books as well. Sadly, there's not too much more I can tell you because the strip only ran for about a year and a half, from May 8, 1944 through December 2, 1945. It only ever existed as a daily comic. Why did King Features drop it? probably just never caught on. To quote Maurice Horn again, King Features unceremoniously dumped it. If you'd like to see a few months' worth of samples of the comic strip version of Wonder Woman, you can visit www.wonderwoman-online.com and click on the Comic Strip button two-thirds of the way down the page. Well, see you next time in the funny papers. Well,
0: thank you very much, Bruce, for that great episode about the Wonder Woman strips. I, I didn't uh, know there had been a Wonder Woman strip, so you've taught the golden age of comic book guy something new, and I really appreciate that. Wonder Woman, of course, was one of DC's big three behind Superman and Batman in the golden age of comic books, and continues as one of the big three uh, on into the present day. So, a very timely topic, Bruce, and uh, once again, I really appreciate you Saying those kind words about the Golden Age of Comic Books podcast, I think that all of us that do comic book podcasts view it more or less as a labor of love. And uh, Bruce, it certainly shows in comics cast. So thanks again for your contribution to the 50th episode of Golden Age of Comic Books. Well, the 50th episode of the Golden Age of Comic Books is kind of a milestone. I know a lot of the other comics podcasts have hit 100 or 200 or more and continue on with weekly episodes. But as Bruce pointed out, uh, there is a lot of work that goes into putting together uh, this show all by myself. I don't have any help, really, from time to time. You've heard my son will come on in and help me out. But for the most part, uh, I do all the research and everything by myself. And so 50 is a a milestone for me uh, because of the time that it takes. And I wanted to do a topic today on the 50th episode of the Golden Age of Comic Books that was... Relatively important to the Golden Age and I thought a lot about it I've already covered a lot of the uh, the big Golden Age superheroes and some of the more important topics about the Golden Age of comic books and I thought long and hard about well Just what can I do to celebrate the 50th episode and then I started thinking about what uh, was going on in some of the modern comics uh, particularly with the death of Captain America most recently within the last few weeks and I thought it would be important, maybe, to talk about a Golden Age Marvel character that I haven't covered before. And of course, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, that's the Submariner. Now, why did I pick the Submariner? Well, I mentioned uh, after Bruce's segment that DC had its big three with Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Well, you know, Marvel had its big three too back in the Golden Age of comic books. And of course, the big three for Marvel uh, was the Human Torch, the Submariner, and Captain America. Well, of course, the Human Torch and Submariner first made their appearances together in the same comic. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And Captain America came around uh, about a year later in his own comic, Captain America Comics. But I thought about the fact that DC, who has its big three continuing on to today, of course, there have been many changes to the Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman characters over the many years, over 60 years that they have been in existence. But DC has always maintained their Big Three. But you think back on Marvel and what they've done, and in a way they really haven't maintained their Golden Age identity like DC has. Now, Marvel, as I mentioned, had the Human Torch and the Submariner and Captain America as their Big Three, and surely they continued in some form or fashion with those characters. But really and truly, those characters for Marvel were supplanted by Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and the X-Men in the world of superheroes from Marvel Comics and so I think what you would call the big three for Marvel kinda got blurred over the years and those original big three characters the Human Torch and the Submariner, and Captain America more or less went by the wayside except maybe for Captain America. Cap was always sort of the flagship character for Marvel in a lot of ways of course Spider-Man was too but Everybody always looked to Captain America, uh, sort of the grandfatherly figure of the superheroes in the Marvel Universe. And and when Marvel decided uh, recently to to kill Captain America, I really had to think long and hard about how I felt about that and its effect that it would have on my comic reading and just my thoughts generally about comic books. And in a way it made me kind of sad, and in another way I understand it, uh, a way to move on into bigger and better things maybe. And maybe it's just all a cheap trick, and they're going to bring Captain America back in some form or fashion um, reasonably soon. But I thought about the death of one third of the big three of the Golden Age Marvel heroes, and I realized that the Submariner is the only original Golden Age Big Three Marvel character remaining. Of course, the Human Torch from the Golden Age really ceased to exist in a lot of ways at the end of the Golden Age. He was a totally different character and Johnny Storm that we have in the Fantastic Four. The Golden Age Human Torch, as I talked about in an early episode of the Golden Age of Comics, was an android created by a professor, and uh, he more or less uh, disappeared after the Golden Age of comic books, along with his sidekick, Toro. But the new Human Torch, of course, with the human being Johnny Storm, got his powers from cosmic rays, as you all know the origin of that character, and even though a character known as the Human Torch existed in the Marvel Universe, you did not have the big three character that came from the Golden Age of comic books, like you do over at DC with Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. So with the death of Captain America, surely one of the big three of Marvel, you really only have left the Submariner. And so I'm going to talk about the Submariner. I've not covered him before on the Golden Age of comic books his origins and all of those great things that we normally discuss about golden age superheroes so let's jump right in and talk about the Submariner now the Submariner who is also known as Namor or in some circles Namor McKenzie because his human father was named McKenzie was introduced in 1939 he was written and drawn exclusively at that time by Bill Everett now Most people believe that the Submariner made his first appearance in the pages of Marvel Comics Number 1 that changed his title to Marvel Mystery Comics with the next issue Number 2. Well, that's not true, and this is probably a good Stump the Rios question. But for those of you who know Golden Age comic books, you know that the Submariner actually made his first appearance in a shortened version of his first appearance in the pages of a book that was not known until 1974. And that book is called Motion Picture Funnies Weekly. And it was designed to be a giveaway book at movie theaters um, around the country. And it never took off. And in fact, when they found eight copies of this book, the only eight copies that are known to exist in 1974 in a cabinet in the publisher's uh, office, they also found covers for some subsequent issues that were never published. Apparently, they just printed the covers of those books but they never actually did the contents of those books. And it might have been interesting to see the contents of those subsequent issues. I bet you they would have looked a lot like what became Marvel Comics. But uh, that book never got put out. Uh, it was never actually distributed. Just those eight copies, as far as we know, were created. And then the Submariner went on to appear in another book, of course, as I mentioned, Marvel Comics Number 1. Now, the story that appeared in Motion Picture Funnies Weekly was an eight-page story. But the origin story of the Submariner, or Namor, who appeared in Marvel Comics number one—that was, by the way, the October, November 1939 issue. That story was 12 pages long, so a lot of things were added to that story from the original that had been put in Motion Picture Funnies Weekly. Also, in Marvel Comics number one, you have the origin and first appearance of the Human Torch by Carl Burgos. Cazar, The Great, The Angel, and other characters. So it was a pretty trend-setting book. In fact, for many years, if you go back and look at some of the old copies of the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide, Marvel Comics Number 1 was the most valuable comic for a number of years, even more valuable than Action Comics Number 1 or Detective Comics Number 27. That uh, changed uh, as time went by, but for a long, long time that was one of the uh, most sought-after books, probably the most sought-after book. And it still is. It's still one of the most valuable books uh, that you're going to go out and buy a new copy of if you're going to find one. And in fact, the 36th edition of The Overstreet Price Guide, which is the most recent edition, the 37th is about to come out, lists this book in near mint at $400,000. And I imagine if you found one uh, uh, in a higher grade slabbed by the uh, Comic Guarantee Corp. would probably be worth a whole lot more money than that. So very valuable book and a very key book because of for one reason the Submariner made his origin and first appearance in that book. So let's talk about the very first Submariner story and what happened in the pages of Marvel Comics number one in 1939. Now, the Submariner did not get uh, top credits in the first issue of Marvel Comics. The Human Torch got that honor. In fact, the Submariner didn't even get uh, the second slot in the book. That was the Angel. But he did appear in the third slot in Marvel Comics number one. And as I mentioned, the story written by uh, and drawn by uh, Bill Everett. Now, in that story, it begins with some salvage ship divers diving on the wreck uh, of a ship down at the bottom of the sea, and they're at a depth that's almost a crushing depth. And as they go down to the bottom of the sea, they are looking for, in this old wreck, uh, a safe that's supposed to contain valuables. And as they look around for this particular safe, and they they realize uh, that it has already been opened by someone, they come to the surface and tell the captain of the ship that the safe has been opened and there's nothing inside. And the captain says, that's strange because... There have been no other ships reported in this area uh, for about three years. And they've been cruising in this area for a whole week and have not seen any other ships. So it's a big mystery. And so they decide to send down uh, a few more divers to try to figure out what in the heck's going on and why the safe had been opened and the valuables were gone. And as they go down there, they spy someone swimming in the water. And they just can't believe it. These two divers in their diving suits with their air hoses and their ropes the old style diving suits that most of you are probably familiar with and they realize that there's just no way that a a, a human being can be swimming down in this depth of, of water that would crush any other person and uh, at about that time uh, the swimmer swims off and eludes them and goes around the corner and is watching them very carefully and as he as he spies them he talks to himself and he says those men must be robots. They can't certainly be men down here in this depth. And so he goes to what he thinks are their control wires for the robots, and he rips them apart. And, of course, as he does that, uh, he kills the two divers. Uh, in fact, he crushes one of their helmets, thinking he's destroying a robot. And they both fall to the uh, to the bottom of the sea, and, uh, of course, they perish. Well, the ship then begins to realize that there's something wrong and that they're going to have to report all of this to the Coast Guard and they decide to leave the area. Well, the person identified as a submariner sees the propellers begin to churn on their ship and he, with great superhuman strength and uh, ability, swims up and with his bare hand stops the propeller on the boat. And of course the engine stops and all of a sudden the ship uh, begins to move into a rocky shoal and The crew panics and, of course, the extraordinary strength of the submariner has pushed the ship right into the rocks, completely splitting the ship in two and killing all of its occupants. Now, at this point in the story, I guess all the readers are wondering, well, just who in the heck is this guy that they're featuring as a hero in this lead story who's running around killing all the divers and destroying all these ships? Uh, Kind of a grim story and it's, it's really drawn in dark colors and it's kind of gloomy in its underwater scenes. But... In any event, the the submariner is, as the story says, elated at his feet of his own strength. And he dives back to the submerged wreck, and he gathers what he considers to be the robots that he has destroyed. And he takes them to a mammoth door in a secluded grotto. And the door opens at his own command, and he enters what they call a chapel-like chamber. And on the throne in this chamber is a beautifully robed creature at the far end of the hall and he asked namor what he has done and what he has brought to the king or the emperor that day and namor says that i cannot truthfully say holy one but thou shalt see for thyself these i came upon and conquered surprising them as they raided the earthmen's derelict they came from a floating ship which i have wrecked with my great strength i give them to you and pray you may be pleased And of course, uh, that's a pretty eloquent speech from this seafaring or sea-living person, Namor. And of course, the emperor doesn't respond quite so eloquently. He says, great sharks, Namor. What type of prize dost thou call these? And he asks Namor to open up, as he calls them, the encasements. And as Namor takes the helmets off of the two, what he considers to be robots, he realizes that they are earthmen. And for the first time, his mother appears and he asks her uh, what has he done and his mother who is a very vengeful person says congratulations my son you have made a good beginning in our war of revenge and Namor says why mother I don't understand why the people of earth are so bad and he asked that in terms of his father being an earth man as well and his mother then tells the story of how Namor Came to be. And she tells the story of how Earthmen were very cruel and they invaded our ancient home deep in the waters at the South Pole and nearly exterminated our entire race. And she says, I met your father in the year 1920 when a great ship, the Oracle, came from America on a scientific expedition. Your father, Commander Leonard McKenzie, was the captain, and they made their base on an ice floe directly above our city. And during the weeks that followed, we were tormented with bombardments of high explosives. Our castles were demolished, our husbands, wives, mothers, and even children were killed in droves. The white earthmen were blasting us out of existence with their infernal scientific investigations. Soon many more ships arrived, and finally, in desperation, our elders commanded an army to be formed. And I, most nearly resembling the female of the white race, was invested as a spy." And so she continues to tell the story. And so it was that on the same night, I was found hunched and shivering in a ship's hole just aft of the main mast. And of course, it shows that she has gone to the ship of Leonard McKenzie and is discovered to be a stowaway. And the rest of the story shows her uh, becoming friendly with the crew and, of course, falling in love with Captain McKenzie. And, of course, the rest is history and ultimately They have a child who is, nay more, the submariner. And she tells the story, And so, my son, it has taken us twenty years to build up a race to avenge the brutal harm done to us then. Now, since you are the only one of us left who can live on land and in water, and who can also fly in the air, and because you have the strength of a thousand earthmen, it is your duty to lead us into battle. You have begun well, but you must use strategy and great care. Go now to the land of the white people. And they show a picture of Namor standing with his knife in his hand, uh, ready to go into battle. And it says, And so Namor, the avenging son, faces the surface men of the world in what promises to be mortal combat. And so then, as the story continues, Namor is preparing to leave and go avenge. Uh, his his people on the white men who destroyed their castles and homes under the South Pole and he meets in an antechamber his cousin Dorma and talks to her for a while and she says, oh, take me with you I would like to see this place that you're going and he tries to discourage her from doing that but she follows along nevertheless and the first place that they come upon is an old lighthouse and they decide that they're going to uh, wreak havoc on the lighthouse and At about that time, soldiers or uh, guards come out of the lighthouse and attempt to capture Dorma and attempt to shoot Namor. And he battles them and makes swift work of them and uh, starts to destroy the lighthouse. Shortly thereafter, a uh, number of of, uh, sailors come with rifles and are trying to kill Namor and Dorma as they are going to destroy the lighthouse. And Namor spies a plane that is flying towards them. And he jumps into the air, holding Dorma, his cousin, and flies up to the plane, grabs the pilot. It's a biplane, by the way. Grabs the pilot, throws him out of the plane, into the water. Uh, Dorma somehow has the ability to fly this contraption, even though she's never visited the world of men above the surface of the water. And she flies off in the plane, and the submariner, Namor, dives into the water... To continue to wreak havoc uh, in the world of men. Well, that's the end of the story from Marvel Comics Number One. It's not quite a ending. You really don't know what happens, and that's because it's a classic cliffhanger. And the story continues in Marvel Mystery Comics Number Two, and I won't spoil that story for you. Uh, you can go out and get that one and read it for yourself. But in Marvel Mystery Comics Number Two, the story continues and on into three and four. And slowly but surely, during those stories, Namor meets uh, some very interesting people and becomes more of an ally of the United States of America in fighting the uh, aggressors during World War II. He meets a policewoman named Betty Dean who is sent to capture him and trap him. And she slowly um, is able to win him over to their cause, and they do so and uh, there's some great uh, sea battle scenes in Marvel Mystery Comics number two that continue on into number three and as they say the rest is history and the origin of the Submariner Namor is complete. But as you can see he is a character who is endowed with super strength. He can fly. Uh, He has um, all kinds of the same attributes that Superman has. Fortunately, He was not litigated out of existence uh, like uh, Captain Marvel was, and he continued to be, as I mentioned, one of the big three for Marvel Comics and became one of the most popular heroes or sometimes anti-heroes for Marvel. And, uh, of course, at that time, Marvel was called timely um, during the golden age of comic books. So let's talk a little bit about his appearances and where he appeared and so on and so forth. Now, as I mentioned, of course, the first appearance uh, was in Motion Picture, Funnies Weekly, and then Marvel Comics number one. Continued on to Marvel Mystery Comics, as I mentioned, the title change. number two. Marvel Mystery Comics went all the way through issue number 92. That was the June 1949 issue. But the last appearance of Submariner was in the uh, issue number 90 of Marvel Mystery Comics. Now... Some big events happened uh, early in the run of Marvel Mystery Comics that are considered classics, uh, both in terms of cover appearances and in terms of what was going on in the stories. And, of course, I've talked about those before in one of the very early episodes of Golden Age of Comic Books where I talked about Golden Age superhero team-ups and crossovers. And that, of course, was the battle that ensued between The Human Torch and the Submariner, the classic confrontation of fire versus water. And that all began in Marvel Mystery Comics number 8, the June 1940 issue. Spilled over into number 9, the July 1940 issue that has a classic Human Torch, Submariner battle cover. It continues on into number 10 where it concludes, that's the August 1940 issue. They team up again in number 17 and in many other issues in the run of Marvel Mystery Comics. One of the uh, uh, important characters in the life of the Submariner, of course, was Namora. She had her own title later on. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Her first appearance wasn't uh, for many, many years. I think some folks believe that Namora must have first appeared along with the Submariner early on in the run of Marvel Mystery Comics. Well, that's not true. Her first appearance in appearance Origin was not until Marvel Mystery Comics number 82, in May of 1947, interestingly, Captain America also made an appearance in that particular issue. Now, the appearances of the Submariner in the Golden Age of comic books were not limited only to Marvel Mystery Comics and Marvel Comics. In fact, he also appeared in the Human Torch's own title, Starting uh, with Human Torch number two, that was the fall 1940 issue and the first issue of that run. That title had actually been called Red Raven number one prior to becoming Human Torch number two in the fall of 1940. In Human Torch number five, that was the fall 1941 issue, the Human Torch and the Submariner battle. In number eight, they battle, and in number ten, they battle. So the fire and the water battled a lot during the golden age of comic books. Now, the Submariner made appearances in virtually all of the issues of Human Torch comics uh, which had its final issue in the 1940s with issue number 35. That was in 1949. The series was revived briefly in uh, 1954 with issues 36 through 38 and the Submariner appeared in all of those issues as well. Now. As I mentioned, the Submariner was a very popular character for Marvel, one of the big three, or I should say timely. And he ultimately got his own title, about a year after the Human Torch got his own title. And in the spring of nineteen forty one, Submariner Comics number one was published, and it continued as a title all the way through issue number thirty two in July of nineteen forty nine. And just like the Human Torch's title, it was revived again in 1954 with issue number 33, that was the April 1954 issue and continued until uh, October of 1955 with issue number 42. Interestingly uh, Captain America appeared in a lot of these issues uh, in, in the uh, revival issues along uh, with the Human Torch and the Human Torch uh, book as well. Now. Submariner didn't only appear in those three titles that I've mentioned. He also appeared in a title known as All Winners. I've talked about All Winners before when I talked about uh, team-ups. All Winners number 1 appeared in the summer of 1941. That was Marvel or Timely's answer to uh, a lot of the team-up books that were being put out by National uh, DC over there with, uh, of course, All Star Comics and, and others. And uh, with issue number 19 of All Winners, they actually formed the All Winners Squad. That's the first time that all of these major characters teamed up. And in that issue of All Winners uh, Comics number 19, the sub Captain America and Bucky, the Human Torch and Toro, the Wizard, and Miss America all teamed up as a team to uh, fight evil. And uh, they also appeared all the way through issue number 21, three issues later, And that was the last issue in which they all appeared now there was a second series of all winners comics that came out in 1949 Uh, only one issue of that uh, with these particular characters and that title quickly became all western winners with number two and of course the superheroes did not appear from that point forward in all winners comics now a few minutes ago i mentioned that uh, the human torch comic book and the submariner comic book Each had a revival in 1954. Well, that wasn't the first issue that attempted to revive these characters, or issues I should say, uh, after they went into a hiatus in 1949. That actually started in the pages of Young Men comics, and with issue number 24 of Young Men comics, that was the December 1953 issue continuing through issue number 28, Timely attempted and Atlas attempted to revive the submariner, the Human Torch and Captain America and Bucky, of course Toro appeared with the Human Torch as well and Namora appeared in these uh, stories as well. That revival continued on in the pages as I mentioned of Young Men Comics. It also uh, ran over into the title known as Men's Adventures with issue number 27 and issue number 28. Those were the July uh, June and July 1954 issues, and all of those characters appeared in the pages of those comics as well. Unfortunately, the revival did not uh, go according to plan, at least uh, according to uh, Timely and Atlas's plan, and by the end of 1955, the Captain America and Bucky characters, the Human Torch and Toro, and uh, sadly the Submariner, all were put back on the shelf and uh, taken out of publication and by the end of 1955 the golden age Submariner uh, was no more for the time being now for any of you that are fans of the silver age of comics particularly the silver age of marvel comics i don't need to tell you the story of the revival of the submariner but i'm going to tell it for those of you who may not know the story and of course the submariner was back in the pages of Fantastic Four with issue number four, that was the May 1962 issue. Seven years after he had uh, gone by the wayside, he was back. And ironically, his old buddy, the Human Torch, who he had teamed up with so many times during the golden age of comics and uh, in the revival era in the 1953, 54, 55 timeframe, came back to, to bring him back to us. Well, it wasn't the same Human Torch, unfortunately. It was actually the Fantastic Four's version of the Human Torch, Johnny Storm, who I mentioned earlier. And uh, he was uh, in Fantastic Four number four, more or less running away from the Fantastic Four. And he was in the Bowery in New York. And he came across this old bum who was um, just as ragged looking as he could be, wearing old clothes. He hadn't shaved in a very long time, just just sitting there looking almost... uh, Uh, Completely non-responsive to what was going on around him and for some reason even though no one else did Johnny Storm Recognized this person uh, and thought that he looked awfully like the the Namor Submariner character that he had read about Previously and so he used his flame to shave the face of this person and of course it revealed the very familiar features of the Submariner with his short black hair his pointed ears and uh, more or less uh, angular face And he picked him up and he flew him out over the water and threw him in the water. And, of course, uh, for those of you who know the story, the water revived his memory, restored everything that he had lost in his mind. And uh, he went swimming off to find his people in what is now, for the very first time, called Atlantis. A lot of people believe that the Golden Age Submariner was from Atlantis. Interestingly, uh, the word Atlantis was never used to describe his kingdom, during the Golden Age or the Revival period in the 1950s. It wasn't until the Fantastic Four revival in the Silver Age of the Submariner with number four in May of 1962 that Atlantis was first mentioned as being the Submariner's kingdom. And of course, uh, he was known as a prince of this kingdom. And the rest of the story, of course, everyone knows the Submariner uh, has continued to be one of the popular Marvel characters, has appeared in many, many stories, was of course an antagonist of the Fantastic Four in early times uh, all the way through the present where he is an antagonist now of the other superheroes um, in the Illuminati stories that uh, many of you have read. So uh, the Submariner has continued on and is one of the most popular Marvel characters in the Marvel Universe. In fact, uh, I've read that they may be planning to give him another title of his own in 2007. So of the big three Marvel characters from the golden age of comics, it's ironic that the Submariner is the one who remains. He was the only one who was sort of an anti-hero, who was anti-establishment, was uh, one of those characters who oftentimes was, was at odds with America, trying to destroy America. And yet, for some reason, he remains as the only surviving member of the golden age. Of comic books for Marvel's Big Three, so very interesting, and uh, maybe Captain America will be back, and and we'll have uh, that other part of the Big Three back. But for now, it looks like the Submariner will hold that mantle. And of course, uh, one more little interesting bit of trivia out there: uh, it's interesting that Captain America, uh, of course, has recently been killed by Marvel, and uh, here we've been talking about the Submariner, one of the members of that Big Three. Well, of course, for those of you who've read the story from Avengers number four, where Captain America was first revived in the Silver Age of Comics after having uh, uh, been dormant since 1955, it was, in fact, the Submariner who was responsible for reviving him. Of course, the Avengers found him, but it was the Submariner who found his frozen body being uh, worshipped by natives and was angry at their idolatry and threw... The frozen body of Captain America Steve Rogers into the water and as he floated into warmer waters he thawed and was found by the Avengers and of course the rest is history from Avengers number four when he became a member of the Avengers but it was the Submariner who was responsible for reviving Captain America in the Silver Age of comics in the first place now Let's talk about places to go and read reprints of the Golden Age submariner appearances. Luckily, there are quite a few of those. A number of years ago, Marvel in one hardbound reprint book reprinted the entirety of Marvel Comics number 1. I don't recall the publication date of that and I did not uh, run around trying to find my copy of that book to give you that information, but that was a uh, one-shot that was done a hardbound copy of Marvel Comics number one. However, if you wanna read uh, the entirety of the Submariner origin stories that appeared in the first few issues, starting with Marvel number one and going on into Marvel Mystery two, three, and four, you can go out and pick up a copy of the Marvel Masterworks Golden Age Marvel Comics volume one. And in that book, you will find Marvel Comics number one and Marvel Mystery Comics two through four reprinted. There will be a lot more information about that book over at Chris's website, the Collected Comics Library website. You can go over there and he will give you all the information that you need to track down a copy of the Marvel Masterworks Golden Age of Marvel Comics Volume 1. And it doesn't stop there because Marvel also published Marvel Masterworks Golden Age Marvel Comics Volume 2 that contains the next four issues of Marvel Mystery Comics. So you can read in, uh, uh, in order the first eight appearances of the Submariner in the history of the Golden Age of Comics in those two volumes. Now, in addition to the two volumes of Marvel Mystery Comics, Marvel Comics reprints, fortunately, uh, Marvel has done all of us Golden Age comic book fans a big favor and has uh, issued or published Marvel Masterworks Golden Age Submariner Volume 1. And in this particular book, you will find all of the Submariner stories from Submariner Comics um, 1 through 4 by Bill Everett and Paul Gustafson. So you can go check that out. That's a fairly recently published book, having come out, I believe, in 2006. And not only does it uh, contain the... Submariner stories from those uh, first four issues of his own title. I mentioned Paul Gustafson if I'm pronouncing that correctly and I'm pronouncing it that way because my uh, My grandmother was a Gustafson and that's how I pronounce it Uh, (laughs) but anyway the uh, uh, Angel stories from that uh, Also appear in each of those four issues. So it's the entire contents of Submariner one through four including the angel stories But these Submariner stories, of course, uh, were being published starting in 1941, and a lot of uh, anti-Nazi, anti-war propaganda, not anti-war in the sense that uh, they were protesting the war, but uh, a lot of uh, war stories where the Submariner is now fully entrenched in being an ally of the United States in the war effort, and he's going to work at uh, destroying the Nazi Navy and whatnot in those stories. So pretty interesting stuff. Now, in addition to the two volumes of Marvel Comics and the Submariner volume. There are a lot of other places you can go to read some of the uh, Golden Age Submariner stories. I don't know all of them. I know that the Submariner had his own title in uh, the, uh, probably in the 70s and 80s. And I know in a lot of those issues, some of the Golden Age stories were reprinted. And even in the book Comics, that's comics with an X instead of an S at the end by Les Daniels. That book came out uh, many years ago. One of the revival stories was actually reprinted uh, where, it's funny, it's an interesting story where the Submariner actually first uh, encounters fire as a teenager. Interesting story reprinted in that book from the revival period. And speaking of the revival period, if you're interested in reading the 1950s revival stories in which the Submariner is portrayed a lot differently, uh, a much lighter character, um, more of a of a... Uh, Comedy type slant to some of these stories. Marvel has also recently published the Marvel Masterworks Atlas Era Heroes featuring Marvel Boy, Human Torch, Captain America, and Submariner. I've talked about this book in a previous episode of the Golden Age of Comic Books, but it reprints the revival stories of Submariner, Captain America, and Bucky, and the Human Torch and Toro from Young Man Comics, numbers 24 through 28. So check that out. Uh, Pretty cool book. I've enjoyed reading some of those revival stories that I have never seen before. Well, I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit about the Submariner from the Golden Age of Comics for timely Marvel Comics, Uh, one of their big three, one of the classic Golden Age characters who has endured into the modern age of comics, right on into uh, the pages of comics that are being published today. So check out some of those reprints, and I know you'll find them very, very enjoyable. All right. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to have a special guest on the 50th episode of The Golden Age of Comic Books. And that special guest is none other than Will Jourdain, my son, who you've heard on previous episodes. Will has pulled out some of the archive books, and he's taken a look at them. And he picked one particular book that he was real interested in, and he's going to talk about a story that he read in that book that he found to be a particularly great Golden Age comic book story. So, Will, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, tell us uh, what story you're going to talk about on the 50th episode of the Golden Age of Comic Books. This is the Justice Society of America, and the story is
2: The Five Drowned Men.
0: Oh, that's a great story. That's one of my favorites, and you know it's one of my favorites because it has Batman in it. Exactly. Batman uh, and Superman. Yeah, that's right. Batman and Superman, one of their appearances, one of their few appearances in All-Star comics during the uh, the Golden Age run of All-Star. Well, I'm going to quit talking, and I'm going to let you talk about the story, so take it away. The story uh, it starts off, it has the prologue, in
2: which um, five friends have gotten together to uh, go on a camping trip, and one of the friends the one that facilitated the whole camping trip g- gathers his friends around a campfire in a uh, deserted lake or riverbed and begins to tell them a story about uh the native americans and how they regarded this river as haunted because it only it only flooded once every every so often and when it did if you were caught and drowned in the waters you would automatically lose all uh, sense of conscience that you had, so you wouldn't differentiate between what was right and what was wrong, and you would, you know, become a criminal. And his five friends all, uh, they all comment on how if they lost their conscience, they would become super criminals because they're all, you know, r- widely regarded scientists or detectives or whatnot. And sure enough, that night, after uh, the five friends go to bed, the, the, uh, the bad friend, the one that is out to get them, moves up, up the river, out of, out of the uh, bed, and his friends uh, camp camp there with their bags. And sure enough, the river floods, and they are drowned. And that's the end of the prologue. Then it goes to the justice society, the uh, justice society headquarters, where they have gotten a uh, a note from um from two of the members saying that they won't be able to show up but that they've both found replacements and those replacements are Batman and Superman. Woohoo. Yep. And so Superman comes flying through the window and Bruce Wayne comes walking through the door and the other members are, you know, questioning Wayne as to why he's here and Wayne says, "Well, hold on, I'll go, you know, find find who's supposed to be the replacement and goes and changes and comes back as Batman.
0: They didn't know he was Batman, I guess. Huh?
2: No, they didn't. Okay. They were left didn't did not know about that. Okay, go ahead. And so then uh they they are they're reading the newspaper and they see an article about five dead men come back to life after drowning in a spring flood in a spring flooded river and being submerged twelve hours yesterday, five prominent Americans return miraculously to life. And uh they they all ha- they gather together, and each one of the members decides to go after one of the uh, one of the certain certain five men who have suddenly become, you know, um, you know, criminals, and so they all separate and go their separate ways to find out what's going on, and the first character to to uh, hunt down his criminals, Batman and he hunts down, he hunts him down who, who he hunting down he's hunting down he's going after the grim marauder who uh became he's become a famous or not famous but very uh efficient cat burglar and batman goes after him and unfortunately follows him into a building and falls prey to a trap in which batman gets thrown down a trap door tied to a post and, uh, left to die. But a mysterious figure comes and throws a knife right behind Batman to allow him to cut his ropes and escape. And Batman goes and apprehends the criminal. But, uh, just as he apprehends him and is getting ready to take him to jail, he receives a call. Uh, a call which we are not privy to. We don't know what is said. But the call lets Batman know that he should bring his prisoner back to jail. Uh, justice society headquarters and not to the police and so they uh they run off and then the flash is next and he is apprehending a uh a blackmailer
0: what is the blackmailer's name
2: the blackmailer is mr x mr x yes all right and he was formerly a famous reporter who would come across various items of interest that wouldn't necessarily want to be found out by the, uh... The people he the blackmailing. Yeah, the people involved. And so the Flash apprehends him, and they, somehow the Flash ends up getting knocked unconscious by this man as well, and they are left in a toboggan run, and, uh, the Flash and another scientist that's helping out the Flash to apprehend Mr. X. And, uh, the Flash... The Flash and the scientist escape because the Flash vibrates his body at a super super speeds and melts the ice they're laying on and they are submerged in a pool of water while the uh, toboggan whooshes over them. And so they escape unharmed and the Flash apprehends Mr. X up a tree and once he unmasks him he also receives a call, a mysterious call, that he should bring... His prisoner back to Justice Society headquarters and not to the police, and so he rushes off with him in arms. Hmm. Next is the next character to uh, apprehend his criminal is uh, the Hawkman. Ooh, my fav- one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And uh, his villain of choice was the Black Rider, who was a... he. He is robbing archaeological sites because before he was drowned in the water, he was a famous archaeologist who knew of Secret archaeological dig sites with valuable, valuable artifacts, and so Hawkman swoops in, and of course is somehow rendered unconscious by the Black Rider, and uh, seems to be a theme going on. Yeah, here. it's they're they're not doing so hot to begin with. He gets hit in the head with a pickaxe and is knocked, <laughs> yeah, and is knocked unconscious, and he's tied to uh, tied down to a sacrificial table in the archaeological site with uh, the arms of of a statue holding daggers, lowering down. And Hawkman, um, you know, does some amazing things and ends up tossing, I believe it's a pot that was sitting nearby up and hitting the off switch on the statue. And so he escapes unharmed and apprehends the Black Rider and also receives the mysterious telepathic call from Wonder Woman to return to uh, JSU headquarters. JSA headquarters. And so he does that. And then uh, he returns with his prisoner. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Next is... uh, The next hero? Mm -hmm. The next hero to go after his prisoner is Dr. Midnight. He's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And he is an unnamed villain who is a famous brilliant scientist. And so Dr. Midnight, he goes to a bank to investigate... Some bags of gold that had mysteriously walked out the door all by themselves and vanished into thin air. That's a good trick. Yeah, it's very impressive, and so naturally, Doctor Midnight follows the gold. He he he, uh, he uh, takes a gold coin, and it is he follows its pull to a uh, through a skylight into uh, the scientist's lair, and is then you know, the scientist takes a pot of melted gold and throws it at Dr. Midnight, which then... That could hurt. It, yeah, it's all over him. Ooh. And so then he turns on his gold ray, his gold attracting... gold magnet, as he calls it, which attracts Dr. Midnight. But just in the nick of time, this same mysterious stranger that helped Batman and all the others pours a jar of water on him and washes off the gold. And so he's able to to escape the gold magnet and apprehend the scientist. And take him back to headquarters.
0: So, let me guess, he got a mysterious call, too, to
2: tell him to bring the villain back to headquarters? He received the same mysterious call from Wonder Woman to bring his villain back. We've got a theme going here. Mm-hmm. And then, the uh, last, but most certainly not least, is Superman. Yay! And he is investigating a series of massive explosions that are knocking over buildings. And... uh. The man responsible is named the Wrecker. And he he was an arch, er, an architect before he was drowned and was jealous of some of his competition. And so now that his conscience has been washed away, he takes to blowing up rival buildings. And so Superman arrives just in time to miraculously piece back together a building that had just exploded. And after doing that... He uses his X ray vision to find the man responsible and stop him. And the man was getting was lighting some dynamite to blow up the building and naturally Superman takes it in his hands and holds it to his chest and there is a faint pop as the you know, the dynamite explodes on his chest like a firecracker. That'd be a nice power to have, wouldn't it? Yeah, you got that right. But uh then Superman proceeds to soundly thrash the the villains and He He wrecked the wrecker. uh, He doesn't get, you know, knocked unconscious or put in a trap or anything. He grabs dynamite and pops it on his chest and then beats him down pretty good. They both came at him with chairs and stuff, but nothing happened. Nothing happened to him. He was fine. Well, that's good. And so he flies back off. He gets the same call, and he flies back off. So Wonder Woman or whoever it was told him to bring the villain to headquarters, too. Yes. Everyone got the same call to bring their apprehended villain Back to headquarters. Hmm, that's interesting. And so we follow Superman back to headquarters where everyone is waiting. And uh, Wonder Woman lets everyone know what's happened. And she informs them that there was a sixth man the night the five men drowned. And that was what the Green Lantern had set out to uh, discover. And they hadn't told his story? No, not yet. They okay. haven't. But that's what c- follows. Wonder Woman, they sit down around the conference table and Green Lantern begins to recite his tale. Oh, okay. And he tells the story of the man that he was following who uh, was the sixth man in the uh, in the report that was camping with the friends. And he follows him to his house, The this mysterious man, and he follows him in and follows him around. And just as he walks through the door, he's clubbed in the head with a wooden club by this man and then tied to the mantle, the mm. uh, fireplace, with his arms outstretched and his legs spread wide while the man points a shotgun at his chest. Ooh. And so... Uh, Green Lantern then proceeds to ask the man why he di- why he's doing it and what his motives are, and the man recites the tale of of why he has so much anger and you know hate for his friends his you know, friends, and uh, why he ch- chose to get them put in jail and re- you know erase their conscience, and so he recites a tale of when they were in college. the uh, the friends are trying to get back at. The uh, the stuttering man. He's throughout the whole story. He's been stuttering his words and can't. He has a s- severe speech impediment, and they tell the tale of the uh, the friends took a dog and covered it in luminescent paint and sicked it into the the friend's room on the man because he had apparently killed uh, a dog by poisoning it, mm. a friend's dog by poisoning it because he wasn't a dog person apparently. <laughs> And so no, they, he, was a, he was a cat person, huh? I must have been okay, and so they sick this glowing ghost looking dog in on the friend and scare him senseless. His brown hair goes white, and you know he's crazy and develops this severe speech impediment where he stutters constantly. He must have been pretty scared to have his hair go white and develop a he speech was, impediment he was he was a ghost dog, I'd have been scared, <laughs> so uh. All right. Then they they go on to tell the tale of him spending years and years trying to find a way to get back at his friends, and they show him talking to a uh, an old Indian chief about the legend of the of the river and what it does. And he goes and investigates and finds that it's it's due to uh, to flood any day now. And so he gathers his friends together, and that's why he's has such you know hate hate for them. And so as Green Lantern listens to this, he's channeling his will through his spectacular ring and he melts the barrel of the shotgun that the man is holding to his chest Mm. and cuts his bonds and um the man you know he runs off out the door uh out the window and uh they have to go and try to find him and so the story picks back up in uh in real life where they're they green lantern has finished his account and uh he tells the justice society about this and they all set out to go find him and they go back to the house where green lantern was held captive, and uh, Green Lantern uses his ring to find the footprint of the man, and they follow it to, you know, to a far-off cavern near the river, mm-hmm. because there's something in the water that once, once you've drowned in the river, you'll uh, have an uncontrollable urge to come back and drink from its waters, and so he knows his friends will come back to the river to drink from its waters, and so he's there, and he is, he is a. Uh, Planted explosives on the bank, and plans to kill them, is that when they come for a drink, and so uh, as he does that, the, the Justice Society shows up just in time, and Superman and Batman rush in and say everyone saves saves the day and saves the five save the five men, and uh, find out that the explosion he set off uh, collapsed the cavern he was in, and he is he perished in the explosion, and so. They run some tests on the water and find out that it uh, contains an amazing amount of free oxygen, which uh, explains why no one can actually drown in it, and because...
0: uh, Well, that's that's interesting. had free oxygen in the water, so they couldn't drown in it. That's interesting. Mm
2: -hmm. And they also find that there are strong traces of a rare drug called Habis Indica,
0: Hmm.
2: and uh, it says the... Doctor Midnight goes. Yes, I've heard of it. Deadens a man's conscience, so he loses his sense of right and right or wrong. And that's uh, that turns out to be why the drowned men lose their conscience and turn to turn to crime. Hmm. Uh, and of course, the Flash has an antidote handy and dishes it out to everyone. And uh, at the very end, Superman walks up to a gigantic boulder that's sitting on the bank and pushes it into the water and dams up the river so no one else will ever have to go through it again and the day is
0: saved and everyone lives happily ever after. Hey, they saved the day, as always. I don't know if the if the Justice Society of America ever didn't save the day. Well, that's a pretty cool story. It's got Batman and Robin in it and, Batman and uh, Superman, not Robin. I'm sorry. Not not Robin, of course. Batman and, and Superman in it, so that's uh that's a neat story. And like I said when we got started, it's one that has one of those rare appearances of Batman and Superman. They did not appear regularly in the pages of All-Star Comics, and so that's a pretty uh, pretty sought-after issue. But what we haven't talked about is what issue of All-Star Comics that was. That was All-Star Comics number 36, I believe. Is that right?
2: I believe so, yes.
0: And that issue, I believe, was the August-September 1947 issue. And of course, uh, the reprint that you've been reading from is in the pages of All Star uh, Comics Archive, volume, volume number eight. Number eight. And uh, if anyone is interested in reading that story that Will has talked about, you can pick up a copy of the All Star Comics Archive, volume eight, and read that story for yourself as reprinted from from um, uh, All Star Comics number 36. Now, the uh, the story has also been reprinted on a couple of other occasions. It was reprinted in DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest number 3 in 1980. But the best place really to uh, to go and find that story is just get a copy of the uh, of the Archives book and I think you'll uh, you'll find that really a great story. It's one of my favorite JSA stories as well. I'm glad we'll pick that story to talk about on this episode the 50th episode of golden age of comic books well that was great i thank you for getting on the show with us today thanks for having me yeah well we'll do it again thanks a bunch no problem all right well that'll do it for the 50th installment of the golden age of comic books for the very first day of spring march 21st 2007 I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us uh, for 50 episodes of the Golden Age of Comic Books. As I said earlier in the show, a milestone for us. And uh, I'm going to keep doing these shows as long as I can keep finding interesting Golden Age material to talk about. Rest assured that we'll keep the Golden Age of Comic Books going. There may be delays in between like we've seen here uh, in recent times. But we're going to do the very best that we can uh, to avoid that in the future. Don't forget to check out our comic space site comicspace.com forward slash golden age comics. There you will find a complete hyperlinked index to every single episode of golden age of comic books, including this episode that you're listening to right now. You can also learn a little bit more about the golden age of comic books and you can become a friend of the golden age of comic books. I guess everybody's our friend, but you can uh, join up over at comic space and, uh, Become a friend of the Golden Age of Comic Books. We appreciate all the support that we've gotten over at that website. Also, don't forget to check out our website, goldenagecomics.org. That will take you to our blog page where we have the show notes for each and every episode, links to each and every episode, and other helpful information about the Golden Age of Comic Books. You can drop us an email at GoldenAgeComics at gmail.com that's our email address for the golden age of comic books so if you're interested in chatting about golden age comic books check that out and of course don't forget to check out the golden age of comic books forum over at comic geek speak you will find a link to the golden age of comic book forum at the website but you can go over to the comic geek speak forum and find a link to the golden age of comic books forum there as well At the forum, we have discussions about each episode of the Golden Age of Comic Books and other discussions generally about Golden Age of Comics. So check out the forum, and uh, I look forward to chatting with each and every one of you over there. As always, don't forget to support the Grand Comic Book Database Project at comics.org. They also have a site at the Comic Space page, comicspace.com forward slash gcd. Uh, I help set up that site over there for them, and uh, it it helps explain what they do and why what they do is important in their continuing effort to catalog each and every comic book that's ever been created, so check that out. Well, I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us for the 50th installment of the Golden Age of Comic Books. It's been a great ride, and I'm looking forward to a lot more of it. Thanks, Bruce Rosenberger, for your segment for today's show, and special thanks to Will, for his great discussion about that wonderful story from All-Star Comics number 36. So have a great week, everybody. I hope to be back soon with another installment, the 51st of the Golden Age of Comic Books. But until then, get out there and read some Golden Age comics, whether it's the originals or reprints. I think you'll find them very, very enjoyable. And as always, I look forward to talking to each and every one of you about Golden Age comic books on our next episode.